as we always do, we lift up our lives to you first and foremost. You are a great and awesome God, and we are so grateful for everything that you do. And Father, we thank you for the times when uh, we can stand up here and, and, and claim that no one in the congregation is facing any kind of serious health issue or problem, and those times happen, Father. And then there are times like we face now, when several in our fellowship face huge issues, relational issues and financial issues, but also health. Now, Father, thank you so much for what you've done over this last week as you're continuing to bring healing to Terry and to Joan and to John. But, Father, it's for Vicki and her family that we lift up right now. You promise us eternity, and so, Father, we know that each one of us will face that time. And we, that's just part of living here, knowing that one day we have to leave here. But it's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to face that. Father, would you just help this congregation to continue to be filled with your spirit of love and mercy and grace to walk alongside this great family in a time of hurt and pain, in a time of anticipation and change. Father, thank you. We pray that you would be with Vicki and Linda in a very special way right now, Father. Just let them know that we're lifting them up to you, praying for them. Father, you are good to us. Even in the face of pancreatic cancer, you are good to us. And we say thank you, Father. And all the people said, amen. Please be seated. Praise team, thank you very much. I appreciate leading us. And so, once again, nice to be back in uh, Salem. I do enjoy Salem. Florida's nice. Uh, you have to kind of get used to Christmas around 87 degrees. That, that was a little different. We landed, I think, uh, Christmas night around 11 o'clock. And so, sure enough, got out and it was 70. But lovely. Always good to see the kids and the, work a little bit on the house that we own there. And it was, a, it was a good time. I hope that you had a wonderful Christmas season as well. Now, Christmas and New Year's, they're over. We know that that's all over. But that doesn't mean that's the end of what we call the holidays. As a matter of fact, the, sec- the next day, it was the 26th, the day after Christmas, I happened to pop into uh, to Walmart to get something, and of course they were putting all their Christmas stuff on sale, but what did they have out in full display? Valentine candy, right, already Valentine's candy, oh my word, but then of course we'll have President's Day and Martin Luther King Day, and then there is the, what, the St. Patrick's is coming, but for the church, there is another, you don't want to call it a holiday, but you can call it a celebration day that is coming, and we are as a church on the road to Easter. This is the new sermon series that we're going to be taking. Yeah, I like that. Already on the road to Easter. It's coming up. As a matter of fact, it's it's a little early this year. It's the last Sunday in March. And let me explain to you why I'm, I'm calling it on the road to Easter. To understand that, you have to realize something about the book of Mark, because we're going to be talking about the last nine chapters, I mean the last eight chapters of the book of Mark. And there's a reason that I'm calling it this and the reason that I'm choosing these particular chapters. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Mark. The gospel of Mark was the very first gospel written. And it's also the shortest. It's kind of a pithy thing. It's the, it's the, the of instant works you'll see immediately and right away. I'll, they say that a lot. You know, right away they got up and did this and immediately they did that. It's short and um, some things about Jesus Christ in there are a little different. We don't have any mention of his birth. He just kind of shows up. But the book of Mark is really there to answer three basic questions. Now there's a lot more in the book and we'll look at that. But three basic questions. And the first question is simply this. 
Who is Jesus to me? We're going to do your sermon notes now. Who is Jesus to me? Now, the first half of the book of Mark, Mark is 16 chapters. Eight chapters are devoted to this question right here. It takes eight chapters in the book of Mark to answer this question. Then we'll take a look at what happens in the other eight chapters. The first half of the Mark is written to answer this particular question. Now, some already knew who he was, but not the people. The only people who really knew who Jesus was were the demons that he encountered. Let me show you this right here. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The demons could have said, Everybody, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And Jesus wouldn't let them. Isn't that interesting? I mean, why wouldn't Jesus want these demons as they're being cast out and everybody's going, Whoa! To testify who he was. There's a reason. It's huge. And here it is. When it comes to understanding who Jesus is, I have to decide this for myself. The disciples had to decide it for them. It couldn't be some sort of glorious manifestation that suddenly, oh, you know, the sky opens up and Jesus is the, the Christ, the Messiah. Demons screaming, he's the Messiah. Jesus wouldn't allow any of that. He was going to live his life, do what he did, because everybody has to decide for themselves. Nobody can decide for you who Jesus is for you. This is hard, by the way, if, if you have teenagers or you've had teenagers, because we know that when kids are little, we can tell them who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, and the kids go, Jesus is the Son of God. Yep, very good, wonderful. He is the Messiah. They go, he is, they don't know what the Messiah is, but they say it. They say it because we tell them. Sunday school class tells them. Pastors tell them, they say yes. And then puberty hits. And so many changes. Including, by the way, the very makeup of their brain. It happened to you as well if you were an adult. When you were younger, you were in what's called a concrete stage. Your brain was very smooth, and in that concrete stage, it was black and white, and whatever he told you, that's what you believed. And then your brain gets all wrinkly, and things begin to change, and suddenly you learn the words... Maybe. Maybe he's the son of God, maybe not. I don't know. Just because you say he is mom and dad doesn't mean that he really is. Maybe you're wrong. Really drives parents crazy, doesn't it? Because there was a time when, boy, they just, they just took whatever you said and, they were, and you felt great. It was almost like you were God in your own household. And now suddenly... They question you, which means it's almost like you're God in your own household because we question God all the time, don't we? There comes that point when we have to decide for ourselves whether what God said is true or not. That's why the demons weren't allowed to speak. The disciples had to make up their own minds. Here's some of the common answers, by the way, to, to what Jesus is in the world today. Ready? Uh, that he's a myth or a holy man or a teacher. You know, there's, there's a myth that maybe there was what's called a historical Jesus. He did live, but he really wasn't the son of God. Or, yeah, he's a, he's a holy man. And there are lots of people, as a matter of fact, even Islam, Jesus is a holy man. He's not the final prophet. That is, um, that's their prophet. That's the one that they just, you know, don't won't allow any pictures to be drawn of or even spoken about because Muhammad is the prophet. 
Jesus is still a holy man, though, even in Islam. To a lot of people today, he's just a holy man. Or a teacher, a really good teacher. Learn the teaching things of Jesus because he's like Buddha. You know, Buddha had some really good teachings. If you've ever studied the teachings of Buddha, Buddha had some very moral teachings. Confucius and others were great teachers. And they said, that's what Jesus says. That's what's going on in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, is people are trying to decide who is Jesus. Because Jesus shows up as a fully grown man in the book of Mark. Just all of a sudden, there he is. And all through the first eight chapters, you'll find people going, who is this guy? I don't understand what's going on. Let me give you some examples. In uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 22, he speaks with authority, and people go, who is this guy that talks with authority? Nobody talks like this. Who is this guy? In Mark 2, 7, he forgives sins. And people go, who does that? Nobody can forgive sins. Who is the guy that forgives sins? Mark 2, 17, he eats with a bunch of sinners. And people go, who is this guy that, I mean, he's eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and traitors. What's going on here? In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his own family thinks he's crazy. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his mom, Mary, and his half-brothers and sisters say, he's lost his mind, let's go get him. And they go to try to collect Jesus Christ. Did you know that? His family travels to wherever he is to take him home, to take control of him, as the scripture says, to take charge of him because they think he's crazy. Who is this guy? In Mark chapter 4, 41, he's with his disciples and he calms the storm. And all the disciples go, who is this guy? Where he speaks and the waves, the wind all calm down. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 17, these are just some of them, by the way. Read the book of Mark sometime. You'll see it all the time. Mark 5, 17, he, he casts out some demons and he puts them in, the, in a bunch of swine, a, a herd of swine, and the swine run into the ocean. And, and the, uh, the, the townspeople come around him and, and they find out, they listen to everybody. Oh, man, this, here was this guy who was filled with demons and now he's healthy. And then all the swine have been running off into the, the Sea of Galilee. And they are, who is this guy? And they were so afraid of him that they don't say, please come and stay. They say, get out of here. You scare me to death. Leave. And he does. Who is this guy? Now, we're going to pick up the story. Ready? Here we go. Jesus is now with his disciples. We're at the very end of the chapter 8 of Mark, halfway through his gospel, and this is what we read. Jesus' disciples went to the village around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. And now here it is, here's the question. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? You can't let anybody else decide for you, all right? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the chosen one the Messiah. Now, other versions, other Gospels say you are the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And in Mark, very concise, he just says, you're the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Those first eight chapters of Mark represent years in the ministry of Jesus, years of him traveling around. And finally, somebody gets it. I want to show you something right here. I, I even brought, I don't, 
often get to do this, but I have a laser pointer. Oh, to, to see, I don't know if you can, oh, you can't even see it. Too bad. Oh, yeah, there it is there, good. This is a map of uh, Israel in the time of, of Jesus. And so just to show you, this is a Jerusalem. Of course, he, he's born down here. His parents are from up here in Nazareth, and he's born down here in, uh, in Bethlehem, okay, right down here. And uh, then he goes up and he spends most of his ministry way up here in Galilee. Nazareth is there, Cana of Galilee. Here's the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida. You'll hear all about this. Capernaum are all right there. This is about 60 miles from here to here, okay, about 60 miles. Now, the story we were just talking about occurred right up here in Caesarea Philippi. This is about the farthest Jesus ever traveled or ministered, right up here. See it? Right up here. That's the farthest he ever did. He's now about as far away from Jerusalem as he's ever going to get. And in Caesarea Philippi, he looks to his disciples and he says, okay, who am I to you? And finally, Peter says, and he gets it right, you're the Christ. Let me tell you what Jesus is going to do now. Now that he's taken half of the book of Mark and years of his ministry just to get it in, his, in everybody's head who he is, he's going to start walking from here all the way down to here. Because the next thing he's got to do happens here. And the next eight chapters of Mark, which start right here in chapter 9, are all about his journey down to here. Right there. It's the road to Easter. That's why we're in this series. For the next ten weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to follow Jesus on the road to Easter. We're going to look at all the things that he did and said on this way. He's going to have lots of other things to say to us. But as we do this, as we take a look at these next eight chapters, as we follow him on this road to Easter, he's going to answer for us the two other questions that are important. Remember the first question was what? Who is Jesus to me? The next question is this. First, what is his purpose. Okay, so he is the Christ. What does that even mean? That he's the chosen one, that he is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. It's a great question. Even if you stand up and say, he is the Christ, okay, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be the Christ? A couple of popular answers today. Are you ready? Here's the popular answers. First of all, his purpose is to protect me from harm. A lot of people believe that. Keep me and my loved ones safe. And another thing he's supposed to do is this. He is here to bless me with things. Okay? That's what we think he's supposed to do. Protect me from harm and bless me with things. And how do we know that those are the types of things that we expect from him? Well, because of our anger. Let me explain what I mean. If... uh, one of your children suffers uh, an accident and are hurt. Do you get mad at your dentist? Do you call up your dentist and say, Why didn't you keep my child safe? Of course you didn't. Why? You, you never expect your dentist to keep your children safe. Do you get mad at God? Oh, yeah. Why? Because you expected him. He didn't keep your kids safe, and you're mad. It means you really thought that he would. You thought it was his job. When you look around and you see people who have so much more than you and you don't have all the things that you want and you're struggling, do you get mad at the postman? 
Do you go out to your mail carrier and say, why aren't you giving me all the things I want? Well, of course not. Why? You never expect a postman to give you everything you want. Do you get mad at God? Oh, yeah. God, why does that person have so much more than me? Why don't I have more? Why? Because you expect God to bless you with things. You expect God to keep you safe and your loved ones safe and to give you things because that in your mind is his job. And we know that because when these things don't happen, you get mad. And I get mad. But there's another question that he's going to answer for us in the next eight chapters because he's going to straighten us out here, okay? Because if this is how we're living, and this is how many of us live, he's going to straighten us out pretty quickly. Here's the second question he's going to answer over the next eight chapters. What does he want me to do? What does he want me to do? That's, that's important. What does he want me to do? Now, here's the common answers. What does he want me to do? Well, you already know, right? He wants me to pray. He wants me to go to church. He wants me to read the Bible. He wants me to give money. Those are the things he wants me to do. And you know what? He probably does. These are good things to do. But is that really all that there is? Is that really what Jesus is asking us to do? Just to pray and go to church and read the Bible and give money? I think we're going to discover in the next eight chapters there's a whole lot more to it than this. See, the problem is, if we buy into what we've just been talking about, that, that he's here to keep me safe, his purpose, he is the Christ, we know that, that's why we're here, we believe that, but his purpose is to keep me safe and to bless me with things, and he wants me to pray and go to church and read the Bible and give money, then what we've done is this. We've said that Jesus is the special one of God who wants me to become a religious consumer. That's what it is. Just like a consumer in anything else, I'm this there to consume religious things from him. As we've called it before, sometimes people see the church as the spiritual Walmart. And uh, they're very disappointed because we can't give you good health and things. It doesn't work like that. So, we've already looked at, very briefly, those first eight chapters that are all designed to get somebody to say, I got it! I know who you are! You're the Christ! Now, he's going to start answering the other questions. And we pick up the story, because this happens right after Peter says, you are the Christ. This is the next thing that happens, and here it is. He then began, in other words, right away. Oh, good, you got it. Didn't you have a party to celebrate? Instantly, boom! He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He just said, okay, you got it. Now let me tell you what my purpose is. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise from the dead. But the problem is it didn't fit with what the disciples understood or even wanted. And when God acts in a way that, that we don't really understand or want, we, you know what we do? We try to counsel him. Oh, let me straighten you out, God. Let me tell you the way it's really going to happen. We go on. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside. I just love this. Peter, who's the one who finally just said, hey, you're the Christ. You, you can almost say, Jesus, you got it. Well done. It's Peter now who messes up. Sometimes, by the way, that really happens, isn't it? It's right on the cusp of when we're doing our best that we really stumble. And that was Peter. You almost say, yeah, I got this one, nailed it. That was a $100 question, I got it. And the very next thing out of his mouth makes him sound like an idiot. Yeah, that happens. 
He spoke plain, plain, plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to, oh my word, rebuke him. Oh, Jesus, you couldn't be more wrong. Listen to me, Jesus. I'm the one who got it. I'm the one who figured you out. Now let me tell you the way it's really going to be. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get me behind, get behind me, Satan. And I, I heard Dr. C.S. Coles one time say this is the equivalent in the first century of saying, Peter, go to hell. It's the word rebuke. You're the Christ. Yeah, nailed it. Now I've got to go and die. And be that's not going to happen. You got it all wrong, Jesus. Let me straighten you out. Peter, go to hell. Let's move on. You don't have in mind the things of God. I mean, could you imagine Peter rise, raised up to that, that point of going, you got it, Peter, way to go. Now, Peter, whoa, all the way down. Oh, man. You don't have the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter, you're not thinking right. You were thinking right for a little while. and You have your own ideas. You're thinking like a human being here, Peter. And you missed it. You missed it. Don't tell me what I'm going to do. You don't understand a thing. Well, could you imagine the emotions of Peter? Ever happened to you? You get the right answer at school, and the very next thing out of your mouth is so stupid that people laugh at you. That was Peter. And then did you see what he said after that? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take it. Now he begins to answer the second question. Remember, the first question is, okay, what have I got to do? What is the purpose of the Messiah? Well, I'll tell you what the purpose of the Messiah is. The purpose of the Messiah is to go, be rejected, be tried, be killed, and rise from the dead. That's my purpose. Peter said, no, no, no. Now he's going to answer the second question. What was the second question we had to talk about? What does he want me to do? Here it is. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he moves on. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for, my, for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And then he finishes with this. And if anyone is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in, the, in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God come with power. And for the next ten weeks, we're going to walk with Jesus on this road to Easter. And he's going to teach us many, 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 many things. But the two most important things he's already taught us because he's already at this point answered all three questions. The first one was, who is he to me? He's the Christ. The second one is, what's his purpose? And the third one is, what does he want me to do? He just answered them. Ready? Here we go. This is his purpose. Right here. Jesus came to give his life away for the sake of others and then receive it back. Now that was so outside of the thinking of the disciples that it would have never occurred to them that the Messiah, the Christ, the Chosen One was here to give His life away in death. 
They thought that the Messiah would come and maybe kick out the Romans and establish the new Israel and be king and they all would get some place in his kingdom and some great government office and pension for life, that kind of nonsense. And Jesus said, no. Matter of fact, when I get down to Jerusalem, not only they will not receive me, but they'll reject me. And not only will they just reject me, but they'll arrest me. And they'll not just arrest me, but then they'll kill me. But don't worry, I'll be back. And it was so outside of the thinking of the disciples, they didn't even hear. He will say this over and over and over again in the next eight chapters. So much so that you would expect that when the disciples, when he is crucified, the disciples will go, hey, don't worry about it, no big deal. He said it was going to happen. Three days, we'll be there. No, they all run. They never get it. Isn't that amazing? Even though it says he spoke it plainly. Jesus said this one time. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus said, now look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to lay down my life for the sake of others. We call that the crucifixion. But I'm going to take it back again too. And we call that the resurrection. Easter. That's what this is all about. To give his life away as he teaches and preaches and he dies and then to receive it back as Easter, that's what he's going to do. But now, did you notice that he also told me what I'm supposed to do? He already said it. It's going to take another eight chapters to get it in our heads, but he already said it. Here it is. This is what he wants me to do. Are you ready? He calls me to, guess what? Give my life away for the sake of others and then receive it back. Did you think you would get anything different than your master? Exactly his purpose is exactly my purpose. His purpose was to give his life away for the sake of others and receive it back again. My purpose in life is to give my life away for the sake of others and then to receive it back again. Now, does it mean that I'm going to die for the sins of the world? Of course not. I would be a very poor sacrifice. I have my own sins to deal with. I can't be sacrificed for your sins. But that doesn't mean that I don't give my life away. Do you see the difference between this and, and the way that many of us think about God, that, that the purpose... And our purpose is to pray, and, do I, and his purpose is to give us things and to keep me safe. Jesus said, no, look, don't you get it? My purpose is to give my life away. I'll receive it back again. We call it Easter. I want you to give your life away for the sake of others, and I'll give that life to you right back. You give me your life that I can use and spend in behalf of all the people around you, and I will give you back your life for all eternity. You give me your life. Give it right to me, he says. Not so that I can protect it, not so I can keep you healthy. I can't promise that. You give me your life that I will then use for the sake of the people around you and I will give your life right back to you now and forevermore. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. Paul said this in Galatians. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. 
I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified. I've given my life. I've actually sacrificed my life over to Jesus Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you. It's not about me anymore. It always was. Now it's not. Or have your good opinion. I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ gave himself for me. I'm going to give myself to him. He gave himself for me and to the whole world for the sake of others. I will now give myself to him for the sake of others. He received his life back in Easter. I will receive my life back in the resurrection. And it starts here and now, and it goes forever and ever and ever. Will I be happy and healthy? Maybe. Or maybe I'll be one of those that has health problems my whole life. Will I be blessed with, with so many things? Maybe. Most Christians aren't. Most Christians in America have more things than we can possibly imagine, but most Christians in the world have very little. They're not blessed with things. But each and every one of us is called to give our life away for the sake of others and then receive it right so let's wrap this up this morning. This is kind of the introduction to what we're going to be doing. What we're going to do now is we're going to take the next eight chapters of Mark. We're going to go through chapter by chapter. Actually, you're, I don't know if you've ever heard this word. I've probably shared it with you before, but it's called pericope. Isn't that a great word? Pericope. Say that with me. Pericope. Pericope. What in the world is a pericope? We don't really go through line by line or verse by verse of the Bible. The Bible wasn't written that way. It wasn't intended to be that way. When you write letters to somebody, you don't expect them to go sentence by sentence. Thought by thought. Sometimes that thought is, is a couple of sentences. Sometimes it's a paragraph or two. Sometimes it maybe take a whole chapter. That complete thought is called what? A pericope, exactly. That means we're going to take this for the next eight chapters thought by thought as Jesus is trying to get across a point and across a point. Some of those will be only four or five verses long. Some will be almost a whole chapter to get across something he's trying to say to us. But all of it's going to be wrapped up in these two things. He's going to try to explain to his disciples and to us his purpose is not to keep us safe. It's not to keep us happy. His purpose is to give his life away for our sake and then receive it back on Easter. And my purpose is to give my life away to him for other people's sake and to receive it back in eternal life. A couple of things, though, as we wrap it up. Two things about giving my life away. Ready? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And that fear keeps us from the soul. We're just afraid. If I give my life to Jesus Christ, he's going to ask me to be a missionary in Africa. If I give my life to Jesus Christ, I've got to be nice to the people around me. If I give my life to Jesus Christ, I'll, I'll lose my money. I'll lose, I may have to give up my job. Who knows what he's going to do? And the fear keeps us from giving our life to God. If you're afraid, there's so many people that, that never really receive that full life that Jesus wants to give them because they're so afraid of giving it in the first place. I make you no promises because the Bible makes no promises. He might call you to be a missionary in Africa. He might. That's his right. He gets to do that. Can you live with it? C could you live your cushy world? Well, I don't know. Some of us couldn't do it. But I'm going to encourage, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
This is what Scripture says. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provision. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom. That's Jesus himself speaking right there from the message. Don't be afraid to give me your life. I can't tell you what I'm going to do with it. No promises, but I can tell you it's going to be great. And if we have to go through trials, if we have to go through the hard times, if we have to go through that giving up of our families, moving away, trying a different culture, giving up our comfort zone, we have to remember this. Now here it is. This is huge. This is important right here. It isn't in your notes. You get to write it down if you want to. In Jesus, after every crucifixion, there is a resurrection every single time. If Jesus Christ asks you to go through that crucifixion, go on that cross, whatever that cross is, he says, I promise you, after the crucifixion, there is a resurrection for you every single time. There is something great coming for you. Don't be afraid. Or to put it another way, after every cross, there is an Easter. If you want to give your life away to God, I promise you, you will face a cross. It's going to happen. After every cross, guess what there is? Every time. Sure, some bad things will happen. Sure, some uncomfortable things will happen. Of course it's going to happen. But oh, man. So many people never go through an Easter because they won't face the cross. So many people never get to that resurrection, that life, that abundant life because they won't face the crucifixion. Don't be afraid. God loves you. You'll be all right. Yeah, there's hard times, difficult times, painful times, hard choices. They're coming. But guess what? It's going to be okay. And then the second thing is this don't be ashamed. Remember when Jesus said that? He said, you know, don't, don't be ashamed of me. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Sometimes in this empirical world of truth and all this other stuff, and we've got to prove everything, and you know, sometimes we're afraid of the word faith and trust. Why do you trust Jesus Christ? Can you prove it? No. Sometimes the world wants to make us ashamed of our faith. Don't be ashamed. Shout it. Be proud of it. This is what Scripture says. Concentrate on doing your best for God. Work you won't be ashamed of. Laying out the truth, plain and simple. You know what? I can't prove to you that Christ even is or was, but I'm a Christ follower. I can't prove to you that Jesus died for me, but that's how I live my life. I can't prove to you that there even is a God, but I've given my whole life to that. I can't prove to you any of that. But I'm not ashamed of any of it. And if it doesn't make any sense to you, well, I guess what I would say is, <laughs> care? I'm, yeah, you, you want to try that? Okay. There you go, that's a good one. All together, here we go. To the world. You know what, guys? I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of my faith. I'm not ashamed of the cross. I'm not ashamed of who he is. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed to stand up and say, I stand with Jesus, and I can't prove any of it. Now, what's going to happen over the next 10 weeks or so? If you, and I really encourage you to read the book of Mark, those last eight chapters. We're going to go through them, pericope by pericope. We're going to see everything that they had to say. But I've already told you. Are you ready? This is great. I've already wrapped up the whole sermon series for you in the first sermon. 
Because the book of Mark is going to tell us three things. Who is Jesus to me? He's the Christ. Do we have that? Do we, can we say that? He is the Christ. Say that with me. He is the Christ, which means the chosen one of God, the Messiah. He's the one who was sent in this world for us. Okay, we got that, right? Good. Now the next two things he's already told us. What's his purpose? His purpose is to give his life away for the sake of others and receive it back on Easter. And he asked me to, get ready, give my life away for the sake of others and receive it back in eternal life. And I just gave you the entire book of Mark. There's a lot more in there. We're going to have a lot of fun with it. But that's the key of what he wants to say. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We, uh, and forgive us.